If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the 25th Gospel according to Matthew, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, and gave you food, or thirsty, and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are my members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here ends the reading of words inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. All right, we mostly know where we are. We are between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Barely a plate of leftovers still in the fridge. The Christmas decorations are creeping out of storage in the attic. But where are we here in church? The liturgical calendar, the church calendar, calls today Reign of Christ Sunday, which sounds pretty serious. It's basically New Year's Eve for the church. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, and we start retelling the story of Jesus 
over again. The lectionary wants to end with a bang, so perhaps it isn't surprising to hear a little apocalyptic eschatology in the text this morning. I mean, this is why we find ourselves talking about the Son of Man and the throne of glory and angels and the devil and separating goats from sheep. And then the punchline. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Yeesh, Jesus. We're over here just trying to enjoy the last piece of pumpkin pie, and you're serving up the apocalypse or at least Matthew is, this parable reflects an eschatological worldview on the part of the early church, anticipating that God would soon usher in a new order at the end of human history. In this vision, history has a beginning and an end, an alpha and an omega, and God initiates and finishes it. If we were concerned with the gender of God, Matthew has provided us with the strongest evidence that God is, in fact, a woman. After all, what mother hasn't said to her child, I brought you into this world, and I'll take you out of it. Matthew puts this imagery in his gospel as the last teaching of Jesus before his death. Matthew has been very careful to build up to this point with a long series of six parables and warnings about living responsibly so as to be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew places the story here in the Gospel so that if we don't remember anything else, we'll remember the description of how it will be when it ends. The intensity of the imagery speaks to how urgent Matthew believed the matter to be. While it may sound disturbing to us, perhaps it is comforting to know that it was likely disturbing to Matthew's original audience, too. Matthew was a fire and brimstone kind of preacher, really excited about hell, which he thinks of as a burning trash dump where terrible hypocrites are left to grind their teeth for all eternity. So he has Jesus talk more about hell than in any of the other Gospels, And he spends a good amount of time listing who goes there, evildoers, unfaithful stewards, wicked servants. We're not exactly sure that Jesus said any of those things. We can let the Jesus Seminar figure that out for us. But Matthew really does seem to like reporting on it and warning that there will be soon and very soon an accounting. This Worldview is a bit strange to our modern ears, reading this 2,000 years after the death of Jesus. It's easy to point out that Matthew got it wrong. The second coming was not imminent. And at this point, most of our theology does not include a second coming at all. I mean, we're still talking about Jesus' first appearance. Can we just leave it alone? Besides, Matthew swung and he missed But it would be a mistake to dismiss this writing as outmoded, apocalyptic ranting. If we are to give Matthew the benefit of the doubt, then perhaps he wasn't simply interested in making an accurate prediction of the second coming. He was a pastor worried about his church using their time wisely. Even as we work through the end time drama, 
This can still be a rather troubling passage for liberals. The stark division between sheep and goats disturbs many a contemporary liberal conscience. We'd rather skip the judgment and damnation. It's taken us down the path of personal salvation and creedal Christianity, and many of us walked away from that kind of Christianity, the save-your-own-soul stuff. This is not actually in the Bible anyway. The Bible never says that the point of faith is personal salvation. This parable makes that explicit. It reflects a very clear expectation of a judgment to come, a judgment based on actions and the extent to which the earthly body of Christ is prepared to recognize and honor him in the face of the outcast, the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. This is the test of one's fitness to participate in God's eternal kingdom, or as Jesus said, go and do likewise, not go and believe likewise. And this is actually a bit harder than that personal salvation track. As Bill Coffin said, it's simply not true that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult. So it's been deluded. As they say, the weekly miracle of the churches is that they turn the wine into water. Too many of us were raised on a diet of magic words. Say this, believe that, and you'll be part of the inner circle. Your seat is reserved on the lifeboat, ticket to heaven punched. But this text says that there will be an unambiguous moment of truth, an accounting, not of what we said, but what we did. We will no longer, as the Apostle Paul says, see in a mirror dimly, but we will see face to face now I know only in part, then I will know fully and be fully known. This is probably why Paul finishes that famous passage with, and now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. Not warm affection, but love. A hard-fought, messy, roll-up-your-sleeves-and-get-your-hands-dirty commitment to one another. In this lies our salvation, or as Jesus put it, Love God and love your neighbors. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. For everything else that Matthew said about how it all ends, how we will be judged, is actually entirely consistent with the description of Jesus' ministry presented in the Gospels. It also parallels other biblical traditions, such as God hearing and responding to the cries of those enslaved in Egypt it echoes with the same tone as that in which the Hebrew prophets spoke out against religious routines while ignoring justice. It affirms that God has very different priorities to those of the religious orthodox. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The theme is later echoed in the letter of John, which exhorts the beloved community to remember that it cannot claim to love God, whom it has not seen, if it, reflect, if it neglects to love those in its very midst. Perhaps this is why the text should trouble us. It is not about damnation, but clarification. Apocalypse comes from a Greek word meaning to uncover, 
So judgment here means clarification, a bringing to light what is true, a revelation of what actually has happened in all of our relationships. Imagine that, the truth being known, no more shadows. The possibility of such a moment of truth seems almost incredible and a little terrifying. We are not always keen to see what the record reflects. We have an advantage, though. In the text, everyone seems surprised. The goats are surprised. The sheep are surprised. Both groups ask, Lord, when? When was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? When? We have no idea what you're talking about, they all say. It seems, though, that we don't have to be surprised. We have this text as a spoiler alert. We've got the cliff notes, a cheat sheet, a heads up. It tells us a few things, notably that God gives preference to the poor. Karl Barth wrote, to establish justice for the innocent who are threatened, and the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the strangers who are oppressed, God stands at every time unconditionally and passionately on this and only this side, always against the exalted and for the lowly, always against those who already have rights and for those from whom they are robbed and taken away. The apocalyptic eschatology of the early churches gave them an urgency that we seem to lack. The Messiah was coming, and soon, so the rich were nervous. These days, it is assumed that God comes with equal ease to presidents as to single moms working a double shift to pay for diapers. We think the poor are a problem for the rich, but it is the rich who are a problem for the poor. And what are we doing about it? When we hold together the ministry of Jesus and this teaching, we see that charity is not enough. Justice is also required. Feeding the hungry is not the same as creating an economy that provides a living wage. Charity makes us feel good, but so often it does not ask us to risk our privilege. Do not hear me say that it is not important that Mayflower provides a meal to those in need down at the Homeless Alliance, but we should remember that trickle-down charity is much like trickle-down economics. It does nothing to fix our broken system. As we respond to the symptoms of poverty, we must also eradicate the causes. This text gives us a place to start. We will be judged by what we did for the hungry and the thirsty. There are plenty of them around here. One in four Oklahoma children experiences food hunger. So we will volunteer at the food bank and we will serve meals at the Homeless Alliance and we will also put our energy into anti-poverty policies. We will be judged by how we welcomed the stranger. We've been working on this around here, moving beyond having that lovely banner hanging in the fellowship hall into an actual real response, one that includes learning a little more lingo, like Dawa, Bawa and Daka. 
It means protesting at the detention center and leaning hard on our representatives in Congress to make a just immigration system for all. We will be judged by what we did for the sick. Oklahoma has the third highest percentage of uninsured residents in the country. Life and death should not be decided by ability to pay. We will be judged by what we did for those in prison. In August, the Department of Corrections reported that the corrections system topped 63,000 inmates for the first time, growing by almost 2,000 prisoners per month for the last nine months. There are plenty of opportunities to visit the folks there to provide public witness to the conditions, but we must also demand justice reform. Reform that is restorative instead of punitive. Reform that prioritizes recovery over retribution. For starters, we must ask the legislature to find enough recurring revenue to fully fund substance abuse and mental health services. Drug courts work. We need them in every single county. Some churches will say that when a preacher makes a to-do list like that, and we're getting dangerously close to being political. I hope so. <laughs> Justice is so central a biblical concern that the church shouldn't be able to help itself from being political. The preaching and ministry of Jesus were so disturbing to both political and religious leaders that he was crucified. Given that legacy, we've got some feathers to ruffle. Some call it being political. Around here, we call it being faithful. Most of you know I'm working on my doctor of ministry. Part of that classwork this semester involved making a presentation on our individual ministry contexts. So for an hour, I got to talk about all of you and what we do around here. I told them about fighting predatory lending and utility rate hikes. I told them about marriage equality and Larry Stream. I told them about the Mayflower Medical Outreach. I told them what we're doing about sanctuary, reproductive justice, and prison reform. At the end of my presentation, one of the cla my classmates asked, so does your congregation love Jesus, or do they love justice? Yes. <laughs> My congregation understands that you can't untangle Jesus from justice or justice from Jesus. The class got kind of quiet. After all, this is a church in Oklahoma we're talking about, land of open carry and the first state to be called for Trump. So if we can do it, well, it doesn't leave many excuses for those East Coast churches. To be clear, I didn't tell them you were perfect. We've got some things to work on, which you can be sure I've saved for another sermon. But in the meantime, we're going to keep loving Jesus by doing justice. There is no other way to do that. I'm not sure the final judgment will be exactly as Matthew describes, but I I do think we will be held to account for what we did while we were here. 
That's how this preacher thinks we should live anyway, and I'm glad to be doing the work alongside you. So happy Thanksgiving, you faithful bunch of heretics. Happy Thanksgiving. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Laurie Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.